This morning, our New Testament lesson is going to come from, we're reading two passages from 1 Corinthians. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, and then we'll be reading chapter 14, verses 1 through 19. A reading from 1 Corinthians. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who activates all of them and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of healing by this one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the, the discernment of the Spirit, and to another all kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. Then into chapter 14. Pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people but to God, for nobody understands them since they are speaking the mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, those who prophesy speak to other people for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Those who speak in a tongue build themselves, build up themselves, but those who prophesy build up the church. Now I would like all of you to speak in tongues. But even more to prophesy, for the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you in some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? It is the same way with lifeless instruments that produce a sound, such as the flute or the harp. If they do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If in a tongue you utter a speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of sounds in the world, and nothing is without sound. If I then do not know the meaning of a sound, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in them for the building of the, of the church. Therefore, the one who speaks in the, a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. What then should I do? I will pray with the spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. I will sing praise with the spirit, but I will sing praise with the mind also. Otherwise, if you say a blessing with the spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving, since the outsider does not know what you're saying? For you may give thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Family trees are interesting. I don't know how many of you in school had to ever, had to ever do a family tree or had your children have to do a family tree. Yeah, you know, family trees are always an interesting uh, thing for me because my family is such an interesting family. You know, Holly's family, they can trace their line back to, I think she has a book somewhere at the house that like takes the Calcote name back to like the 1500s or something, something crazy like that. Like my line stops like one generation ahead of me because, <laughs> you know, I don't know my biological father. I don't know anything about his line. I I've met my biological grandfather like grandmother like once in my life before she passed away. So that's on, that's on my biological father's side. But even on my maternal side, my mama Sarah, I don't know most of her bloodline because she was born in Ecuador. 
and that part of the family's Ecuadorian. I got nothing, y'all. My kids' family trees stopped pretty quick. You know, they could go like a generation or so, and then like we're kind of tapped out. So when they say, do you have any family history and stuff? I go, I don't know. I could have everything floating in me, y'all. Every disease known to mankind could be in these blood right now, and I'd have no idea. Wait to tell you're not. I'm also not doing those DNA tests because I'm not paranoid, but I'm paranoid. So just don't nobody need my DNA. So we're not doing any of that. So, so I don't know what I got. Family, family, family trees are interesting. Did you know churches have family trees? Or not just maybe churches. Well, churches do, but denominations do as well. Um, in America, nearly every denomination in America has its birth in the Church of England, which makes good sense. You know, that's the same thing for our nation. You know, we as Americans come out of England and outside of some stuff in Louisiana, most of our laws are more English law and heritage than they are like, you know, Napoleonic. But that's, you know, we have, that's our nation's family tree, but same thing for churches. So the Methodist church comes out of the Church of England. But by the way, so does the Baptist church. So does the Presbyterian church. So does, and then you have some American churches like the, churches that started in America itself like the Disciples of Christ. They, are, they started within America itself. But most of, our, most of our American churches have their birth in one of two places. One would be the Church of England. The other would be the Roman Catholic Church. You know, and of course you would actually say, well, we all came from the Roman Catholic Church because the Church of England came from the Roman Catholic Church. So our family tree as churches tend to kind of, they, they, the, the base is very, you know, if we're going to start with what's it on the ground now, very wide. But you go two or three generations up, and nearly every church has the same mother or father, the same grandparents. And as I said, for most American churches, that birth mother, that mother church would be the Church of England. Now, we Methodists, we're an interesting bunch. I'm reading a, a wonderful book that I would, I, I would recommend to you incredibly highly. It's uh, by a, a, a author by the name of Kevin Watson. Kevin was a um, professor at Candler Seminary in Atlanta. He, re he just achieved tenure, and he did something really crazy. He, he got to tenure, and he resigned. And now he's now the discipleship pastor at First Methodist Church Waco, and will be working probably at the Baylor Seminary as well. But neat, neat theologian. But he wrote a book entitled Perfect Love. And it basically talks about John Wesley and his understanding of sanctification. Sanctification is the concept of Christian growth. How do we, there's a lot of words been used for it. Sanctification, holiness, Christian perfection. There's a lot of terms you, you use, but you've probably heard the word holiness. Holiness churches, that comes out of John Wesley's concept of Christian sanctification. And no, no, it's not just John Wesley's doctrine. I mean, the entire church believes it and the Bible preaches it. But in this book, Watson talks a lot about how Wesley believed that Methodists were placed upon the earth for one reason and one reason only. And that was to teach and preach the doctrine of sanctification. That's why Wesley, because you look at Wesley's career, his ministry. Wesley was not a, he didn't like church fights. 
Now, now he got in church fights a fair amount, but he didn't, he didn't ever go spoiling for a church fight. And in most of his ways, John Wesley was very practical, was a very practical person. The one doctrine that he refused to ever give an inch on was the doctrine of sanctification, which is the doctrine of Christian growth, the doctrine of holiness. That, for Wesley, was his kind of red line, the thing that he would not budge on. No matter how much conflict it caused him, he would not budge on that. So, that's what Watson believed that Methodists were here for, was to teach, preach, and live sanctification. Okay, where's this all going? Stay with me. I promise you it's going somewhere. Methodist, our family tree is interesting. Methodist, our family tree, the, the main Methodist presence in the United States of America is the United Methodist Church. You've probably heard about a, a new denomination coming down the road called the Global Methodist Church that will be born soon. But that, those are kind of the two main, those are going to be the two main Methodist groups in our nation. But that's not the only Methodist within our family tree. We have the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church. The AMEZ, African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. The CME, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. We have the Nazarenes. They came out of the Methodist Church. We have the Wesleyan Church. They came out of the Methodist Church. We have the Methodist Protestant Church. They came out of the, you know, you know anybody that grew up Methodist Protestant? Yeah, you do. That fellow right there, Mr. Rigby. So we have the Methodist Protestant. And we have da, 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 the Pentecostal church. Pentecostals came out of the Methodist church. The biggest Pentecostal revival in American history years ago was the, you may, you may have heard this phrase, the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles led by Methodist. The first Pentecostals were Methodist. They are in our family tree. Because here's what's interesting, and here's how we're getting there. Kate was talking to children about how you would, uh, how you would uh, what, kind of, what kind of tool you would use to fix glasses or whatever. If you went to an apple tree, would you expect to find a pear on it? No, you'd find an apple's. Peach tree, you'd find peaches. Trees are known by their fruits. Jesus says, by your fruits you shall know them. Well, every part of Christian growth has a fruit that it produces. In fact, what does Paul tell us in Galatians? To pursue the fruits of the Spirit. Christian life, Christian growth is going to always produce fruit. Sanctification, Christian growth, will produce for it fruit. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters believe that the evidence of sanctification or the evidence of Christian growth is speaking in tongues. Their theology on speaking in tongues, while it may look very different to many of us in this room, actually finds its root in John Wesley's theology of sanctification. Because they will say that the speaking of tongues is the evidence of one's Christian growth or one's Christian sanctification. So you may not speak in tongues was well, because you are not sanctified enough. You aren't yet holy enough. You haven't yet grown in grace enough. So in the Pentecostal tradition, which like I said, the Methodist church is their mother church going back far enough. You trace the genealogy back far enough as they come out of Methodist. They would say that's the gift of tongues, which Paul talks about in the text today, that the gift of tongues is an evidence of the Holy Spirit. So that's where tongues come into play. And so we see, we see within this passage 
that Paul talks about how, you know, if you're going to speak in tongues, you need to also have an interpreter. Because what good is it to speak in an unintelligible language if no one can benefit from it? That's why Paul said, I'd rather speak five words plainly than 10,000 that no one can understand. Paul tells us in the text that the gift of tongues should be associated with the gift of interpretation. And we see all types of tongues in the world today. We see, we see what we saw at Pentecost. If you go back to Pentecost Sunday, we see there people speaking. Peter and the other apostles spoke. And what happened, if you read the text, people heard in their own language. That's one type of tongues. That Pentecostal experience was more about the hearing than the speaking. But what Paul is talking about here is Paul is talking here about that secret, mysterious language of sometimes called the language of the angels. For many people, they will experience it in their individual prayer life. You know, they may be praying and they will feel the need to, they will speak in tongues. I've had friends of mine that have experienced that. For others, in a more charismatic worship service, they may stand up in church and speak it. But Paul is clear in that setting, someone needs to be able to interpret it for it to benefit the whole of the body. So we see here in Scripture that there is clear biblical evidence of speaking in tongues, but there's also clear biblical evidence for how it should play out. Because the Bible is clear that God's not a God of chaos, but God's a God of order. So it should flow in a certain way. In this series of troublesome Bible passages, I wanted to talk for a few moments about this gift of tongues. I believe the gift of speaking in tongues. I do not have it. I do not want it. I'm good. I'm good. One of my, the seminary I went to was a Memphis Theological in Memphis, and it was an ecumenical seminary. It was actually Presbyterian in heritage, but it had over 30 different denominations. And one of my best friends on campus was a member of a denomination called the Church of God in Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Church of God in Christ, often shortened to Kojic. The Kojic denomination is, at one time, was the fastest growing denomination in America, and it's an African-American Pentecostal denomination. Uh, you, tend, you tend to see them more in more urban, urban areas. One of my good friends was in that denomination. And so the last thing you had to do in seminary was to, because in the Presbyterian tradition, you typically don't serve a church while you're in seminary. Like Methodist, we'll throw anybody out there. I can get y'all five churches tomorrow if you want it. Come find me, I'll hook you up. I can make dreams come true. So in our tradition, you typically preach in seminary. In the Presbyterian tradition, you don't, which means for most Presbyterians, the first time they serve communion or do a baptism or frankly preach a sermon is when they're doing it with live ammo. So your last semester in seminary, you do a class where you do all these things to get ready. So anyway, long story short, they had us all lead a service in the tradition of our church. So for practice, and then everybody else commented on it. Well, when I did the Methodist service, my Pentecostal friend just couldn't believe it. He said, Andy, what would you do if the Holy Spirit led you to do something that wasn't in the bulletin? I said, first off, the Holy Spirit's not going to do that. I said, secondly, if the Holy Spirit was going to do that, he would let me know by Thursday so I could put it in the bulletin. He said, what would you do if somebody stood up at your church and yelled, amen? I said, I'd look at him and go, shh, we're in church. So I affirm that folks can speak in tongues. I also affirmed you, I'm good. <laughs> I, my language is hard enough to understand as it is. I do not need the complication of tongues. You know, some of y'all may think I speak in tongues anyway. So, Holly's my interpreter if that's the case. But here's what I want you to hear about tongues, and here's the greater point of it. 
Tongues in the Pentecostal theology are the evidence of sanctification in their theology. Okay, now chapter 12, chapter 14, speak of tongues. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians spends the entire time talking about tongues and how this works and all the gifts of the Spirit, as Kate was telling us in the children's moment. But if you were to follow chapter 12 all the way through, you know what follows chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians? You ought to know basic math, chapter 13. We all know what chapter 13 is, don't we? What does Paul say? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a clashing gong or a clanging cymbal. If I surrender my body to the flames and give all I have to the poor, but have not love, I've accomplished nothing. By the way, what did I tell you the name of Watson's book was if you were paying attention? on a method of sanctification, perfect love. For John Wesley, the goal of sanctification was never perfect action, but it was perfect love. As the love of Christ is shed abroad in our heart and poured into our heart, that perfect love of God will drive out all sin and drive out all those things. And we will be drawn closer to God with his love more and more within our hearts. And then as God's love is more and more than our hearts, that will allow us to desire to serve God more and to serve our neighbor more. Because what did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? But to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. On this hinges the law and the prophets. That's what it's about, y'all. And ultimately, the evidence of our sanctification It's not speaking in tongues. It's not speaking in church. It's not singing in choir. It's not serving on a committee. That's not the evidence of our sanctification. That's not the evidence of our Christian growth. But the evidence of sanctification, the evidence of our Christian growth is that perfect love of God shed abroad in our heart that then spills out into all of the world. That's what we're after, y'all. That's the evidence of our Christian growth and the evidence of our Christian faith. We were talking one day in the the office about a situation. And somebody said, Andy, what would you do if you encountered? It was a situation that I didn't know what to do with. It was a spiritual thing. And somebody said, what would you do? (laughs) What would you do if this happened to you? And I said, okay, I want to think about this. I want to give you an honest answer. I said, I want to give you an honest answer. I said, honestly, if I was confronted with that situation, you know what I would do? I would find the phone number for Dr. Knickerbocker, my favorite professor in seminary, and I would call him and ask him what I should do. Because Dr. Nick was the holiest man ever met in my entire life. Dr. Nick, Dr. Nick was a charismatic Catholic. He was a Catholic who spoke in tongues. Bet you didn't know they made those, did you? He wasn't holy because anything like that, though. He was holy because he had the most compassion and love for every person he met that I've ever met in my entire life. And when you were in his presence, you were in the presence of someone who you felt the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. And you know that in that place you were loved. And that love made you desire to love God more. That love didn't make me think, boy, Dr. Nick sure is perfect. It made me think, man, God is good. 
And I want to love my God in the same way that he loves his God. I want to have that same God shed his love in my heart that is shed in Dr. Nick's heart. I want to love God more so that I can love my neighbor more. That's what our sanctification leads to. And that is the evidence of our sanctification. Not perfect action, not having the prettiest voice, or the best singing voice, or the best preaching style, or whatever. That's, too, that's off to the side. And now, I will show you a more excellent way. These three remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. May all that we meet see the evidence of our sanctification through our love of God and through our love of our neighbor. Let's pray.